0: All right. Happy birthday. Thank you. Singer. I wanted to start with that because <laughs> I didn't know last time, but yesterday was your birthday. Yes. And you had fun? I
1: did. I had so much fun. I am now 24 years old and I just kind of can't believe that because when I started the program, I was 22, mm-hmm. which is just really weird like to think about. Yeah just how fast like time has flown by but i am really just grateful like i i feel like a, a lot more recently i've just become very mindful of like reflecting back and doing a lot of like just self reflection and i just have considered like all the things that I've been doing, like just the last few years. And I'm just really happy. And I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to do all of these amazing things. And, you know, like I was thinking about the podcast and I was thinking about just like school and work and all the stuff that I've been, I've been doing and I'm just super grateful. Um, I don't feel any older. (laughs) Yeah at all. Like, it's just, honestly, I, because of finals, I practically forgot my birthday was coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I remember I like went downstairs on Monday and my mom was like, Oh my God, Natalie, I can't believe your birthday's in a few days. And I was like, huh? (laughs) And I looked at the calendar and I was like, wow. Okay. Like we're already in the middle of December and it, it felt like we were just taking midterms. So it was just like a really weird, like, I don't know, this whole finals was like really crazy, but yeah, I'm happy. I had a great night, went to dinner with my family. Uh, I went out to a, um, local brewery in my town with some friends and just had a really fun time. And I'm going back out tonight with another group of friends. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what we get into.
0: Unfortunately, not me, <laughs> not in LA sad.
1: I know. I know. We're gonna have I to do,
0: I'm going to have to take you out. Yeah.
1: I mean, um, I remember you were telling me about this place that does is it kombucha yeah yeah i would love to
0: try that so we june should time. yeah this episode is actually sponsored by june Shine. <laughs> god i wish oh my god oh, i wish yeah when we're there we should be like so we have this yeah. podcast we think that you would love <laughs> we think that actually- you should expand your brand yeah into urban planning
1: <laughs> yes urban planners need to have a drink once in a while and they might as well have a hard kombucha
0: true it's good for your gut yeah. and good for a good time that's correct and that is why this episode is in fact sponsored, sponsored. just kidding <laughs> I don't want to get like sued they're like, <laughs> know, like um you imagine? who is this just kidding June shine yeah, yeah I'll take you out
1: I um I actually just got a DM from one of my old co-workers um back when I was in undergrad and she had sent me like our page got reposted and she was like, Oh my God, I can't believe you guys are actually like growing such a footprint. And I was like, Whoa. And I guess it was like a page. That's like a very popular, like urban planning page. And so she followed it and then, but it was her husband that sent it to her and oh my he God. Like, and then she sent it to me, I guess. I think that's like, right. Went. And so I was like, Oh wow. Like, okay. That's so cool. Like, yeah, I just, I was Really? Gosh, I'm just so happy that we actually decided to do this because I remember I know. We talked about it and then nothing really came of it. But then we actually finally like made the decision. And I just, I'm so happy with how far we've come. Like, yeah. this is just so cool. Like 20
0: episodes. I know. Wow. Guys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, uh, you can almost legally drink. Yes. 21 wow the big one it's coming up
1: man when are we gonna hit like a year we have to do some really crazy stuff for like our one-year anniversary and all that I feel like it hasn't been that long no it's
0: definitely not we started in July okay so we're we're almost like six months probably we're (laughs) six months old anywho um I saw this article it's actually not they're very recent now that I'm looking at it it's from I think it's from 2021 but um yeah so it's from a year ago literally a year ago today December 16th 2021 and it's titled it's by Wired it's titled the U.S. is gently discouraging states from building new highways and I was like oh because we just talked about that right um, it starts with kind of talking about something that we didn't talk about was like the greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector, because yes. I feel like it's kind of a different angle to look at the problem. But in the U.S., transportation makes up 29 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. And when you say
1: transportation, you're talking about public transit or are you talking no, about transportation
0: buildings? as like a like as like a sector? So like, oh, got it. Okay. Automobiles, trucks, right. so like the whole suite. Yeah is responsible for 29 percent of the country's greenhouse gas emissions so over a quarter of the total which wow is crazy. yeah that is um and so it was kind of talking about you know like automakers are pledging these targets for evs and other type of plug-in hybrids and um oh great it's actually saying that i need to subscribe to read the whole thing Ugh. not doing that right now but anyway yeah. <laughs> in a memo that the fha federal highway administration deputy administrator directed her staff um to encourage state and local governments to consider fixing existing roads before building new ones and i think that yeah. that's a huge problem that we have especially in like Well, I don't know, especially, but like we were driving, I was driving in San Francisco the other day and like the roads are just horrible. Yeah. They're like dangerous. Like I feel like I'm going to get a flat tire every time I hit a hole.
1: Yeah. I do feel like, especially what we were talking about from last episode, you have all of this existing infrastructure that is not being properly maintained. Yeah. a lot of areas Mm -hmm. and especially like there's also equity considerations as well as like where are these roads and why aren't they you know being fixed in a manner um and the safety considerations and things like that um sorry guys that was my email I don't know if that came through on the sound um but I think that we are often so focused on like what's the next thing that we need to do Mm -hmm. versus focusing on what's the existing issues and how are we going to also be addressing those while of course, like coming up with these innovative ideas of how we're, you know, what is the next move? I understand that, but I feel like often there's, there's not two, like one gets neglected. Yeah. And so I just think that we need to be so much more mindful of the fact that like we have so many issues with the existing infrastructure. We need to start focusing on how we're going to deal with that before we start moving on to building even more highways and freeways and all of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So on that note, um, the FHA, as of this memo in 2021, I'm sure that this is still continuing today but they urge state officials to consider strengthening non-highways like roads or bridges that are in tough shape and also they say quote gently remind state and local officials that climate friendly projects like bike lanes and walking paths need less stringent environmental review than new roads and bridges it's
1: really funny um that just like when i was reading that it brought up this really, really interesting thing that my dad was talking to me about. Um, so often government agencies, um, because there are requirements at state level, federal level, and then you, you receive funding in order to implement whatever the requirements are, whatever the goals are that the state and the federal government has. And those are passed down often to metropolitan planning organizations or local governments. And so you have this like specific set of funds right and i'll never forget my my dad was talking to me about this he was really like frustrated because there were some elected officials on his staff uh, i mean not on his staff sorry uh, elected officials who sat on the board of mm-hmm. his agency and they were upset because um in the plan that the agency was um putting out for just transportation improvements or projects um, there were bike lanes, like dedicated bike lanes that were going to be built, and I believe they were going to be built um, either next to the highway, but they were going to be like separated and dedicated bike lanes. And um, they, the these elected officials, I guess, went onto a local news uh, page or like onto a local news um, broadcast. They were interviewed, and they were saying like we just can't believe that like our agency wants to spend millions of dollars on these bike lanes. Nobody even bikes and nobody even is going to be using these bike lanes. And the problem is that like, they're upset about this and they don't want it to happen, Mm -hmm. but you have to, to build these bike lanes because that's the only thing that the funding is for. The funding isn't for road improvement or bridges or anything like that. It's specifically like, you have a dedicated goal of, you know, you need to build X amount of bike lanes. Here's the funding for it. And that's all, that's the funding that you can use it for. That's it. Like, that's the only reason you could ever u- utilize this funding. And so I also feel like there's this like common misunderstanding, even between local elected officials who get upset and say like, well, we don't want more bike lanes, but it's like, okay, well then we just don't get that money. Like we, mm-hmm. cause there's nothing else we could use the money for. Right. Right. And so I do feel like it's just really important that, like, when we're addressing, like, we're oh, there's a project to add more bike lanes or there's a project for more walking paths. Like, Mm -hmm. typically, that's a project that's required by the federal or state government for local agencies to fulfill. And so there's really no, like, you know, you going and saying, like, oh, my God, why are we doing this is kind of pointless because that's what the funding is for. Yeah. And so I just... I think it's frustrating just hearing like folks who have their own implicit biases about these things and like have their own feelings about it when in reality it's like maybe you don't see that many people utilizing these bike paths but like there is a lot of you know data and surveys that go into like determining how many bike lanes we need where we need them why we need them all of that so
0: Also, like, maybe people would bike more if they could, like, actually get to places safely. Exactly. Because, like, for me, there's, I can definitely bike around some of the areas that I live in, but I can't, like, well, I could, but I don't want to bike in areas where it's, like, there's not a bike lane. Yes. Or they're, like, just, it kind of stops, Yeah. And so it's like, maybe people would use these things more if it was more comprehensive network. Exactly.
1: hundred percent. And we talked about that last episode. Like we just need to be more mindful of the fact that like, are people not utilizing these alternative modes because they don't want to, or because it's not safe or it's not efficient or, you know, something that's not simply the fact that, oh, I just don't want to. Cause usually that's not the case. Like it's because there are other things that people are considering and that's hindering them or it's a barrier for them to even utilize these these modes. So it's very interesting to me. The way we think about these things. Right.
0: Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam and I'm not.
1: So today Sam and I are going to be talking to you guys about a non-transit, non-transportation uh, episode. Yeah, although I feel we're- like
0: we're like so in the transportation world I that we're like, that's the only thing we're thinking about.
1: I know, I know. Um, and yeah, I just like, even today for my transportation class, I got my final paperback. And so I was, I was very much like, just in the in the mindset of transportation just for the yeah. last few weeks. But Sam and I are kind of shifting a bit. Um, we did wanna bring up that article because it is just like relevant and timely. Sam sent it to me. And so she wanted to, to let you guys know that that's available and we'll link uh, the article for you guys to read if you, if you so choose. Mm-hmm. But we're kind of shifting a little bit and now we're gonna touch on some of the environmental aspects of urban planning. And we thought the perfect place to start um, although it is very, very specific to the state of California, is the California Environmental Quality Act, otherwise known as CEQA. And so we are going to dive into that topic today, and I'll let Sam take it away.
0: Yeah, and it is a behemoth of a topic. Like, it is, the statue is like a book. Like, it's fully a book. I have the 2021 statute and it is so long. Yeah. So this is just going to be like a very surface level kind of looking at like the CEQA process because it is lengthy. It can take a really long time to like complete the CEQA process and it has been used as ways to like stymie projects Mm -hmm. like housing projects or multi-use projects. So yeah. Yeah. but I feel like because we're in California, like it just makes sense to talk about it. And it's, I don't know, I feel like it is one of the most like probably stringent environmental policies in the country.
1: Yeah, definitely. I also think because California just in general, we have some of the kind of biggest climate goals. We yeah, are yeah. also one of the largest contributors to emissions and pollution and the all- fifth largest economy in the world. Yes, ma'am. And so I think with that comes, you know, obviously a lot more stringent policy surrounding in the environment and, you know, just environmental quality in general um, with projects that are built in the state. And so we just wanted to kind of give you guys like an overview. Um, and if you are in another state, I still think it's important to, you know, hear about these things so that you can see like, when we talk about the fact that like we are in a housing crisis and we're dealing with, you know, severe housing shortages in the state, Sequa is a process that often can prolong projects quite significantly because Mm -hmm. of the requirements that Sam and I will talk about shortly. And so I think it's just really important that when you're thinking about like, oh, well, why is the state struggling so much to build this this housing? I mean, there are a lot of factors, but this is a a factor that just adds to the timeline of development for a project. And so we just kind of want to give you guys some Alternate understanding of, you know, when we say that these things are very intersectional housing, transportation, environment, like this is one of those, you know, examples. And so we're going to dive in and kind of give you guys a 101.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I just finished a, a class all about CEQA. So hopefully I can speak intelligently about this, but it's like really a lot. Um, but we'll just start with what is CEQA? So as Nat said, it's the California Environmental Quality Act. And it requires government agencies to consider the environmental consequences for their actions before approving plans and policies or committing to a course of action on a project and there are kind of four big bullet points of what the purpose of the CEQA process and the environmental review process is for so first Um, to inform government decision makers and the public about the potential environmental effects of proposed activities. And we'll get in a little bit later with this, but there is um, like public participation requirements within the Mm CEQA process. Like throughout the process, you have to have a certain number of hearings and you have to inform people about the hearings in multiple different ways. Right. Um, So that's kind of one is informing the public and the the people making the decisions. The second part of this purpose is to identify ways that environmental damage can be avoided or significantly reduced, which kind of seems like an obvious one. Um, the third, prevent significant, avoidable environmental damage by requiring changes in projects, either by the adoption of alternatives or the imposition of mitigation measures and last to disclose to the public why a project was approved if that project has significant environmental impacts that cannot be mitigated to a less than significant level which basically just means like if if a project is absolutely necessary but it's going to cause you know so like some like Noise that's above a noise threshold during construction, or it's going to affect like people's views, but there is like no other alternative project, then it can still be approved,
1: right?
0: Um, without like meeting significant thresholds for these different areas,
1: right? And so, if you have an agency that you know determines a proposed activity is a project under CEQA it usually takes just these following three steps. So the first step would be to determine whether the project falls under a statutory or categorical exemption from CEQA. And Sam and I are gonna go into detail about that further. Then the second one is that if the project is not exempt, then they're going to prepare an initial study to determine whether the project might result in significant environmental effects. And then the third would be to prepare a negative declaration mitigated negative declaration or an environmental impact report, depending on the initial study done. And so environmental impact reports are essentially these very, very long reports. And they're submitted where they do a full analysis of all the potential impacts that a project could cause on the surrounding environment. And I can't remember how they do this with CEQA if it's like a project radius. So if you use like it's a radius around the project or if it's like based on a city or based on a neighborhood i'm not 100 percent sure like what the environmental impact assessment is like what the
0: range is it kind know? of varies based okay. on different um i'm not an expert obviously but it kind okay. of varies on the different my dog is scratching on my door <laughs> i think she'll go away it kind of varies on which um like impact you're looking at. So if it's like noise, you have to identify like um, significant receptors that are like near the project. And then you have to state like how far they are away, what the noise level will be during all the different phases of construction and during operation. Okay. Um, If you're doing transportation, it's kind of, I don't know, actually the way that we did it was definitely not as robust as like an actual EIR because you're students and we're just learning about, kind of the ins and outs of this um but we just kind of looked at the impact and how many vehicles it would bring to like surrounding streets or like streets adjacent to the project right so I don't know if there's like a formal designation of like this from this street to this street or within (laughs) this many feet around is the study area and that's where we're gonna focus yeah
1: I'd be curious to like know um because EIRs, like number one, are already like really, really lengthy and timely processes and like developing them, it's expensive. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It adds such high costs onto a development project, which is again, why I say like often people do view CEQA as kind of this hurdle um, for developers because it's expensive to prepare an EIR, you have to hire a consultant who has to do the analyses. It's you know a timely process, so it takes a long time. And then also uh, the public outreach that you have to do is an additional cost and additional you know time added onto your project timeline. And so and then also depending on what's found in the environmental impact report can also uh, halt a process. Uh, I'm sorry, halt a project. Or it can add to the timeline, for instance, um, I know in certain EIRs, like soil contaminants have been found. And so that completely halts a project because then they have to um, take that soil off of the land. It's like a whole process. It takes forever. It can stop projects months or years. Um, And so often like this is kind of a hindrance to development. Mm -hmm. And although environmental impact reporting is necessary because we do need to understand What is this project, you know, going to to cause in terms of environmental impacts? But at the same time, it's like this really difficult challenge because it's like, okay, well, projects are taking years and years to get complete, and it's because of like a lot of these requirements that you know it's not just CEQA; there are other requirements, but they're very, very timely, and it just it's yeah, kind of an interesting struggle between the two cuz you understand why it's necessary but it's also, you know, it brings some challenges. Um yeah, and I
0: remember our, our invi- or not environmental law, um planning law, like the legal frameworks of planning professor was like seek was a really easy lawsuit. Yes, that like NIMBYs can use to right. stall and delay and yeah. make people put more and more money into like legal aid and Right put just more time on right. development and a lot of times in terms of like permitting, like there is a timeline where it's like, yes. if you don't do it within this time, like you have to request or whatever. I don't know how permitting works mm-hmm. totally, but like it, it can like expire.
1: Yeah. And I remember she used like a very particular example where it was like, there was a proposed project and it was going to be right next to an existing um development. And it was, I believe going to block the view, like this new project was going to block the view of an existing development. And so the developer ended up suing this, like filed a sequel lawsuit on the new project or use Sequa um, mm-hmm. uh, as a means to basically sue the, the developer of this new project in order to make sure that the existing view is not hindered by this, you know, new development. Gosh, yeah. if that makes sense. I don't know how yeah. many times I just said new development. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no,
0: I, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. She, like, she used that example in classes. Like the, it's very, very easy for someone to come forward and, and either ask that an environmental impact report be, um, uh, done on a project, like by, you know, reasonable means, or they can also argue that the existing environmental impact report was not extensive enough, or that there were like, they can identify like, oh, this wasn't properly done, or maybe the public outreach process wasn't proper. And so that can also, again, like halt a project. And in some circumstances, like, when people sue against like and utilize Sequa, like it's it's reasonable. Like they are doing it because maybe there there are severe challenges that the project mm-hmm. didn't assess. But there are other circumstances in which people are using it with malintention mm-hmm. and or I'm sorry, with malicious intentions. And that's just to stop the project entirely so that it doesn't, you know, hinder their views or, you know, just kind of Impact like their experience of their the of the built environment in which they live, and so I think it's very interesting like how easy it is though to file a lawsuit using Sequa, yeah. and our our professor like talked about that a lot. So um, now just moving back uh, because I wanted to talk about the difference between statutory and categorical exemptions. Mm-hmm. So statutory exemptions are projects that are specifically excluded from Sequa consideration which is defined by the state legislator so a statutory exemption applies to any given project that falls under the definition regardless of the project's potential impacts to the to the environment so some examples are if it's a ministerial project or if it's an emergency project Mm -hmm. and so often like these will get CEQA exemption um, and that's a statutory exemption and the Then there's the categorical exemptions, which are made up of classes of projects that are generally considered not to have potential impacts on the environment. And there are 33 existing classes, and some examples are just um, existing facilities, so either replacement or reconstruction or accessory structures. And so those are two um, examples of of some of the classes. Mm-hmm. And so the most notable difference between these, uh, this between statutory exemptions and categorical exemptions are that statutory exemptions are absolute. So when a project qualifies for a statutory exemption, CEQA absolutely does not apply. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But in contrast, a categorical exemption is subject to a variety of exceptions. And so if an exception does apply to an otherwise categorically exempt project, then the project must go through that secret review. Yeah. So that one's a little bit more subjective and um, it's there's a little bit more wiggle room where someone could say, oh, okay, well, it was categorically exempt, but actually, you know, we've identified some kind of exception. And so because of that, now there, there does need to be a secret review that takes place. Yeah. And so um, Sam and I will also be like providing you guys with some links um, so that you can get more information if you are interested to learn more about this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're just going to kind of go into the sequest streamlining.
0: Yeah, and really quick, just going back to the example that our professor gave about like the, the views. Um, in the beginning of the SQL process, there is something called like an initial study. And in that study, there's something called Appendix G. And this is kind of like an easy way to kind of get a solid idea and understanding of what kind of impacts are looked for in a CEQA like analysis. So Appendix G lists, I wanna say like 20 areas where you could have environmental impacts from like um, noise, transportation land use like greenhouse gases wildfire like there's a bunch of different ones and one of them is aesthetics which is like very subjective yeah like truly there are some guidelines on like it does this it does this but it's like my aesthetic and your aesthetic and his aesthetic and there's it's like so it can yeah. be so different so if someone's yeah. like I like development I like high rises I like cities that's great but what if someone's like I like low rise I don't want this building mm. right next to me like right I don't know it's just like there are definitely flaws yeah in the, like it's by no means a perfect thing no absolutely not And the point of this appendix is to kind of say, okay, where are we going to have potentially significant impacts? And for a lot of these, there are like significance thresholds where it's like, okay, with air quality, like there can only be this much NOx, uh, like nitrogen oxides or whatever. There can only be this much of ozone. Mm -hmm. And so give like thresholds. And if you're above that, then you're potentially significant and you either have to mitigate below that and say, oh, well, we can actually change this and this and this to be lower, or you have to file for it's like where you can have the project, but there's no way to mitigate. Right. Or you just don't get to build your project. And yeah. Like,
1: Sorry. Right. And I think too, especially with like when it comes to um, housing development, mm-hmm. it's a big challenge when, you know, someone is fighting, maybe like, let's say, for instance, like a high rise building. Um, and so, the problem then becomes yeah the compromise is that you're going to maybe knock some stories off like if that's you know going to be the mitigation strategy but then you lose units and then you lose again time because it takes significant time to design the building mm-hmm. and then also to determine like how many stories the project's going to be and how many units are going to be on each floor and what the structure of these units is going to look like and all of that. And so that's a timely process that now you basically have to redo because you're changing the structure. And so I think with this, again, it's like, yes, I, I feel like often there is opportunity for consensus, but if the argument is that like, oh, you're blocking the view for another project. Well, we're in a housing crisis and we need units on yeah. the ground. <coughs> Excuse me. So, my problem or struggle with that is I'm less concerned about your view being impacted, and I'm more concerned with the fact that we are in such a severe housing shortage and we need. units and you're basically because you don't want your view to be impacted you've knocked off two stories onto a building you've added to the timeline of a development project that could you know have gone through the process quite smoothly and now they have to basically redo everything so it's just like this very frustrating thing where I understand that to a lot of people like developers are the enemy like this is how they're viewed I don't necessarily know why um but developers kind of have this like reputation of like they're just not like good or something. I don't know. It's like in the urban planning field, I hear this like very often. Um, and they, you know, have a bad rep with residents because obviously they're building a project in an existing community. And so the residents are upset, but again, like I understand their frustration when it's like, you're doing the work to get this project on the ground and you're just facing like delay after delay for such ridiculous reasons, like as a obstructing view, like I understand. And again, like, I don't want to speak so like generally because I do understand that in certain circumstances, maybe like blocking a
0: view, like it could be serious. I don't know what, like, It would be like if you had to conduct like a shade analysis or like a shadow analysis. And it's like, this building is now never going to get sunlight. Right. Exactly. That would be, Yes, one of the like reasons that that actually is like an issue right. is like people need vitamin D, like they need Yeah, D
1: absolutely. Energy. So like yes, if that's the case, of course, like I understand. At the same time though, like I know that often, especially in the case that she was talking about, the obstructing view was for aesthetic reasons, like right. that he wanted the existing, you know, owner of the of the existing project that was already built. Just didn't want his residence to not have a view, right? And I just think that like now you are basically turning away all of these units that could be developed, and I just think that's ridiculous. And I don't understand how Sequoia like how that's even a al- like how you're allowed to actually sue somebody over that. I just feel like that's if someone came to me and said like oh this is why I'm suing, I'd be like no, we're throwing the case out. That's ridiculous. Now goodbye. Like, but I don't know. It's
0: just really crazy. Well, I'm glad that you asked (laughs) because there are now more recently some streamlining options for different projects. So whereas typically in Sequoia, you'd have to do an initial study, a notice of preparation, an EIR, or a negative declaration, another like a draft EIR, final. And then like, it's a process and an EIR takes a long time to do, and usually requires a lot of different consultants who are experts in the different issue areas. Right. So the first one that we'll talk about quickly is Senate Bill 375 in the state of California, California Senate Bill. And this bill would exempt from CEQA a transit priority project that meets certain requirements and that is declared by the legislative body of a local jurisdiction to be a sustainable communities project. Um, And, of course, the transit priority project would need to be consistent with the planning organization's sustainable community strategy, which I think now, like, pretty much every metropolitan area is required to have a sustainable communities strategy. Or an alternative planning strategy that has been determined by the state air resources board, which here is CARB, California Air Resources Board, to achieve the greenhouse gas emission reductions target. So it basically says that there is, like, limited CEQA review for, um, I think it it counts for transit priority projects or residential mixed-use residential projects.
1: Yeah, and I think, again, like... as I was saying, the biggest struggle right now is housing and housing development. And so they're trying to find ways to streamline the sequa process because it is such a hindrance to development. Mm-hmm. So that like aspect of residential or mixed use residential projects is, you know, it's important, um, when just considering like how to kind of revise like the existing law that is sequa. Yeah. Um, So there's also another Senate bill, which is SB35. And this, this bill creates a new streamlined approval process for multifamily residential projects in cities or counties not meeting their regional housing needs allocation goal. So we've Sam and I have talked about RENA many, many times. And so basically, if the project falls within a city's limits in which that city has not fulfilled their RENA obligation, this bill essentially would require that local entities streamline the approval of certain housing projects by providing a ministerial approval process, otherwise meaning like no CEQA. And so it would be the focus design review and remove or lower parking requirements. So it's a voluntary program that a project sponsor may elect to pursue, provided that certain eligibility criteria are met. And so this is, again, another streamlining opportunity because if a city is not fulfilling their RENA obligation, then this becomes essentially, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. Um, If you're not meeting your targets, then you don't get to get picky about, you know, certain projects and yeah, use sequa yeah. as a way to, you know, make sure that that project doesn't happen. And so this is just that the a streamlining opportunity to make sure that cities aren't trying to use sequa as a way to not get a housing project built in their community, especially when they're not fulfilling their RENA targets or the RENA goal. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that's also, you know, just very, very important. Um, Moving forward, because again, and I cannot state this enough, our shortage of housing and not only just the fact that we have a housing shortage, but we have such a bad, uh, a significant backlog Mm -hmm. is honestly mind blowing. I'll never forget. It was my first semester at USC. My professor put up just this visual of, um, how many permits have been, um, uh, how many permits have been carried out each year for development projects, specifically for housing development projects over the years it was started. I think it was year 1995, all the way to year 2020. I believe it was 2020. And I cannot tell you like how ridiculous this looked like the, it was a bar chart and it basically was just this like negative slope. Like (laughs) we are not, generating housing anywhere close to where we have been in the past. And this has created such a significant backlog that is also not often being accounted for in data. Like when we're coming up with projections of, you know, our, like how much housing we need often the backlog is not even something that's acknowledged. And so this is just like, just a very, very important situation that's happening because we are really not considering just how severe this, this issue actually is. Yeah. And so if, you know, there are streamlining opportunities that can help mitigate, you know, the challenges that we're seeing, I think that's great. But Mm -hmm. I also am curious to, to really see, you know, how far this will, will take it. Because again, like I've said, CEQA is only one aspect of a, of a barrier to development. And so I'm curious to see how, how that could, potentially help the process moving forward i'd be curious to know like if there's any studies that have been done on like since the passage of these bills because sb 35 was what passed in I think
0: 2018 it, so I think it came into effect in 2018
1: yeah so if it came into effect in 2018 i'd be curious to see like has it had a positive impact on development like has it been a utilized resource
0: yeah Yeah, I think it's one thing that, you know, the state is starting to recognize, like, CEQA has been used in, like, NIMBY ways, like, people just saying, like, oh, I don't want, like, multifamily housing in my area, like, whatever, but it's another thing to, like, make these laws, like, known to developers, like, hey, you can do this, like, yeah, it should be, like, developers should be aware, but it's, like, we need to start being, like, you have like jurisdiction now to do this because yeah. it's like kind of like builders remedy where it's yeah. like you're they didn't certify their housing element you can actually now have this streamlined process same thing yeah. here you're not meeting your Rena goals developers can have the streamlined process to meet the housing goals faster and not have like all of this like environmental and other review processes that tend to just slow pro- like projects down
1: exactly and i think that's again like just what we've been talking about multiple times on the podcast is like the reason why these laws are are coming into effect is because local elected officials are not producing their fair share of housing it's yeah, just okay. like this is just the stark reality and so now the state is finally coming down and they're saying like enough's enough and so we're coming up with like these new policies that are going to make it an easier process but then again like you said it's also about making sure that the proper folks are notified that like these exist and these can be utilized strategies moving forward Mm -hmm. to ensure that like the process is a bit easier. Um, And so, yeah, I am really, I want to look more into SB um, 35 to see like what has come of it in the last few years. And then maybe we can give you guys an update if we find anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, we could talk about CEQA for like Oh, absolutely. So like, if we just talked about, like, what's an EIR? Like, what yeah. goes into it? Like, that, oh my gosh, yeah, that could be a whole thing in and of itself. Yes. But we just wanted to kind of give like a rundown because it is like the, like, the kind of, I for lack of a better term, like, gold standard right now in California. Of like, this is what the environmental review is going to be, and right. you have to abide by it unless you're you meet one of these exemptions, right? And it is like a really arduous project process. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to kind of give a very high level, very basic introduction yes. to this law.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like, I just, I understand the need for Sequa, I understand it's necessity. I think it's extremely important, but I definitely think it's got a lot of flaws. And even like our law professor had, had spoken about this during class and said like Sequa is nowhere near perfect. It definitely has challenges and issues. And Sam and I kind of addressed some of those today. And so because of that, moving forward, you know, the state does need to be mindful of ways in which we can make Sequa just easier on development and the development of projects and so I just I think it's always like a step in the right direction when I see bills like this Mm -hmm. and I'm just curious to see what's going to happen moving forward
0: yeah and I think it's kind of interesting and then I think we should wrap up but like there's not really any like equity considerations within where it's like oh well this area is like historically burdened with air quality so like this needs to be a focus here, whereas like this area is in a severe lack of housing, whatever, like whatever right. I feel like it's very general of like across the state, but it's like yeah. we do need like local solutions that yep. address the needs of each community. And so I feel like that could be a whole other thing in and of itself that I am exactly I have no clue like what yeah. is going on in that area, if that's like right. something that our people are talking about, but it's something that I have definitely thought about in terms of like well like how do how do these kind of environmental justice and equity considerations like get woven in
1: yeah yeah well I think that's where like where it comes down is like you do have this kind of general law that's applied across the board but then it is the local governments and other agencies that are often like implementing you know these laws and And so I think that's where like that intersectionality comes in. But then at the same time, you know, you have the general law and then you have the local considerations. And so it, it really is trying to find like that perfect balance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just always a struggle in general, because, you know, we've talked about this, like politics comes into play, you have personal biases, you have Mm -hmm. residents, like that's a whole other, you know, NIMBYism and just Mm -hmm. residents in general, like, who have issues with projects. I mean, that's just another thing in and of itself. So yeah, it's definitely a very, very hard balance.
0: <sighs> yeah. But with that, I think we can wrap it up. We yes. have one more episode before. Oh no. The next, I don't think we're going to have another episode until after the holidays. Yeah. So have a happy holidays to everyone, no matter what you celebrate. Have yeah. you a happy holiday.
1: Yes. Happy holidays to everybody. And I just hope you have the best time. I know the holidays aren't easy for everybody. So just take whatever time you need, treat yourself however you need to. And I just wish you all the best. And I know Sam does too. (laughs) We'll see you in the new year. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's going to be fun. (laughs) All right, guys. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And Remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.